The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by Dennis Ross, uh, who joins me from Austin, Texas. And Dennis Ross is a former envoy to the Middle East under Bill Clinton and a professor at Georgetown University, um, among other distinguished titles. Dennis, um, Joe Biden uh, went to Israel yesterday, and I can tell from your Twitter feed that you were quite impressed by his performance there. Can you tell me what struck you as, as good about his visit, his speech, and so on? I think there were several things. Uh, number one, we've never had an American president, notwithstanding how every American president proclaims the ironclad commitment to Israel's security, we've never had an American president go to Israel during wartime. Uh, and at a time when Hezbollah and Iran are posturing in the north that they might open another front, having the president go there on top of the deployments he's made of two carrier strike groups into the eastern Mediterranean, it sends a very strong signal of deterrence on the one hand, but it also does something else. Uh, Israel is still in a state of shock, given what's happened. Uh, at a time when the when the country is reeling, even though I think the, the sort of military has recovered its footing, uh, having the President of the United States come in there provides such a source of reassurance. I think this was a moment where reassurance was necessary, but it also allows him the ability to say things to Israel and Israeli leadership. If we see them sort of going off course, we're in a position to sort of say, we have the credibility to suggest, at least as the president said, to raise, to raise some hard questions. And it's, it's not that the, that the issue right now is the constraining the Israelis from what is necessary to do, but it's making certain that the character of Israel's military approach right now is actually designed to serve a set of objectives that Israel is truly seeking and can produce an outcome that also allows you to do something about the day after. There will be a day after. We don't know exactly when it's going to come, but there will be a day after. And there needs to be planning for the day after, not when you arrive there, but in advance of that. And I think a lot of this trip was deterrence, reassurance, and doing something to alleviate the humanitarian disaster in Gaza right now. Uh, and I think he also succeeded. You know, He's gotten an agreement from President Sisi to open the Rafah crossing so at least 20 trucks can carry in humanitarian assistance. He also got agreement that the Israelis would allow humanitarian assistance in. I suspect we will be, over the coming days and weeks, and I say both days and weeks, uh, we will probably be asking the Israelis from time to time to do pauses to permit humanitarian assistance to come in. So this trip, I think, produced actually quite a bit and it was not without risk for the president, but he was willing to take it. And that's why I, I responded the way I did in, in the Twitter feed. I guess you call it the X feed now. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I think I think he had I, th- I think he achieved what he could, and I think it's important that he did so. I, I have noticed there was some criticism of him, not so much from Israelis, but on from uh, pro-Israelis in America, um, suggesting that in his suggestion that Israel doesn't want to repeat the mistakes that America made after 9-11, he'd perhaps gone a little far and that, you know, how would Americans have felt if uh, a foreign leader had come to them and told them to, to sort of to take it easy take it, or to try and not be consumed by rage in the days following? What, what do you make of that criticism? Well, I understand it at one level, but I, I also don't take it so seriously because, first of all, the Israeli body politic right now looks at him as maybe the best friend Israel's ever had in, in the White House, and that's saying something. So I think he's he is granted uh, a kind of license to say things to the Israelis as a result of that. And the, and the point on the rage, what he's really saying is, in the end, rage is not a strategy. And this this should not be about vengeance. This is not about vengeance, and the Israeli government isn't saying it's about vengeance. It's about dealing with a threat, which is really an ISIS threat next door, that can't be lived with. You can't coexist with that. We wouldn't coexist with it. So that's not rage and anger. That's recognizing the nature of a threat that respects no rules and never will. And therefore, you have to have a strategy that is going to be effective in terms of dealing with it. And if people say you're going to eradicate Hamas, you can't eradicate Hamas. Because Hamas is a movement, it's an idea, and it doesn't exist only in Gaza. But what you can do is you can make it no longer a military threat. You can prevent it from being in a position where, in the aftermath of this, it can block what it has been able to block before. Go back to 2014, one of the conflicts since 2009. There was a lot of interest at that time because you'd had a conflict for 52 days. It had obviously devastated much of Gaza. There was an interest in reconstruction, having a mechanism where you could do reconstruction and not have the materials go to Hamas. And effectively, Hamas blocked it. Uh, And the outcome of this should be that Hamas can't do that again. So it's not just that it's not a threat to Israel. It's also that the ability to maybe create a formula of demilitarization for reconstruction is something that becomes achievable. It probably requires a technocratic administration within Gaza, probably some kind of international umbrella. And so you're, you're looking at trying to create a different set of circumstances that allows you also to transform Gaza uh, from what was before this, a terribly impoverished state, into something that has some potential for a real future. Mm. Uh, so you were, quite, you were quite, quite impressed by the trip. You were quite impressed by Biden's speech. I wonder what you think about the Biden administration's approach to the Middle East more broadly. It certainly seems to have carried on to some extent without ever acknowledging it. The Trump era policies towards the Gulf states, or at least an attempt to sort of uh, hasten uh, the warming of relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel in particular, at the same time as it has gone back to the Obama era policies, or some of the Obama era policies or approach, let's say, towards Iran. And I think a few people are thinking they've got it wrong. They've muddled up U.S. strategy in the Middle East. Do you agree with that? Well, I look at the at the strategy as having reflected a, a set of priorities. When the Biden administration came in, the Middle East was clearly not one of its priority areas. 
Yeah, it was focused obviously domestically on, you know, a kind of an economy and a national security for the middle class. That wasn't just a slogan, it was kind of an article of belief. And that meant, okay, we're in a long-term foreign policy, we're in a long-term competition with China, we have to position ourselves for that. Ukraine takes place, and suddenly, you know, we're now having to, to deal with the big slam war in Europe since World War II. Uh, and it transforms again the priorities. Priorities now are how you have to mobilize the world to deal with this threat, and it's a fundamental threat to having any basic norms in in international relations. So, what had not been a priority before, in some ways, is reduced further, but also it begins to create a sense of change. And I say that because the change was. Gee, there's some of these countries in the Middle East that may be important to us in the, in the longer-term competition with China uh, and may be important to us in the context of Russia because we need to, we're trying to cut up Russian oil and gas supplies or at least reduce them to the point where there are alternatives so that Russia isn't getting the kind of revenues that it needs to sustain the war. So that began already to shift the focus back somewhat to the Middle East the Israeli-Palestinian issue was never viewed as a priority, in part because there was no sense that you could do anything to resolve it, given the political realities in Israel and the political realities among the Palestinians, first and foremost of the Palestinians, a division not just between the West Bank and Gaza, but between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, and no capacity on the Palestinian side to make any concessions in the negotiation, and the emergence initially of an Israeli government that was a broad-based government that could do some things on the ground, but could, you couldn't agree on uh, any basic political principles for how you would deal with the Palestinians. Uh, so they were looking at a landscape that said, there's not much we can do there. We, they evolved to the point where they begin to look at, okay, maybe we have to think about the Saudis and the Gulf states more than we did. Uh, and then they, as a result of that, then they began to think about, okay, maybe we will build on the Abraham Accords, and maybe, uh, and maybe if we have a breakthrough between Saudi Arabia and Israel, we can we can use that to really transform the region because there'll have to be some housing component in it as well. So I would say there's been a kind of evolution of the policy, starting with a very low priority. One indication of how low the priority was, took five weeks for the president to have a call with any Middle Eastern leader, and that was Benjamin Netanyahu. There were many calls with leaders all around the world, but five weeks before there was a call with anybody from the Middle East. That was kind of testament to the Middle East had a low priority overall, and especially in foreign policy. Biden, as a candidate, talked particularly after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post contributor. He talked about Saudi Arabia being a pariah state. And because of the realities that you've just described, once he was in power, I think it's fair to say the Democrats performed quite a volt farce on Saudi Arabia, or certainly Biden did. Do you think that has diminished his ability to to have influence in the Middle East, the fact that he has done this U-turn on Saudi Arabia? I don't think it has. I think, look, one of the interesting things about what we've just seen, the, the reality in the Middle East today is, is quite complicated. That's like a diplomatic understatement, right? But I, I mean, if you think about it, if the U.S. is... It was questioned before about its reliability. Does it have staying power? Is it going to stay in the area? What the president has just done in terms of 
uh, reinforcing Israel, while it in the immediate context, especially in the aftermath of what happened with the hospital in Gaza, where emotions are running very high in the Arab world, and even though technically it's now been demonstrated that it was not an Israeli strike, but it was an errant Islamic uh, jihad rocket, the perception is that this was Israel. And so you have, you have all these Arab leaders condemning Israel, but you have this kind of interesting duality, which you almost always have in the Middle East, between public postures and private desires. Public postures address what are the emotions of the moment. Private posture is no Arab leader on the Sunni side wants to see Hamas be anything but defeated as a result of this, because they don't want the ideology of rejection to be gaining a major boost uh, in the region. So there's one set of considerations there, but there's also this other one for all those who have questioned where the U.S. has stayed, are suddenly the way the U.S. moves two carriers into the region, the way the president shows up uh, in, the, in Israel, first president do so in wartime, it actually is a reminder that, gee, the U.S. really does stand by its friends. So you, you have this interesting complex of realities and emotions right now, uh, and it's going to take time for this to play out. But I'd also just note one other thing. For all the doubts about the U.S., it is interesting that the first Saudi condition for wanting to do, for being willing to do normalization with Israel was an American defense commitment, to an American defense treaty with Saudi Arabia, which suggests something about, we know there's nobody else who can come and help us in, in extremists. So there's, it, it, this is not unusual to have the Middle East characterized by multiple layers. And this is another example of some of those layers. Uh, very interesting what you say about the the public stances and the, and the private desires. Uh, what clues can we see uh, in the positioning of, of various Middle Eastern states, various Muslim states, uh, that their private desires might be different to the statements of solidarity with Palestine they make and the and the fairly anti-Israeli posturing that's going on? You're not going to have many public clues because the public posture is responding to what they see as the anger among their publics. Uh, and these are leaderships right now that don't want to see instability in their own countries. So they're adopting public postures that reflect the anger of the moment. But their private communications, uh, and here I can tell you, I'll just say I know from my own private conversations right now are quite clear in terms of what they hope the outcome will be. And it doesn't surprise me at all because, as I said, you you have kind of two competing approaches right now. You have Iran and its, and its proxies and quasi-proxies that represent a rejectionist ideology versus those who want to build kind of resilient societies that can be prosperous and also can allow them to have good governance. There is still, for, especially for the Gulf, for Gulf states and the Gulf leaderships, the lesson from 2011, the, the so-called Arab Spring, was you got to have good governance. Because if you don't have good governance, you're going to have people in the squares and you don't know what the result's going to be. Now, there are Sunni Arab leaderships where the governance isn't great and, and, this, and the prospects don't look so great. But for the Gulf states in particular... They want to be building these more modern, effective societies. And that's the antithesis of what Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas represent. So if Hamas looks successful, 
And you had this combination of, they went on a killing spree in Israel, uh, and and they came out of this and they looked like they won. Uh, then the, the, the validation of that ideology in the minds of a lot of people in the so-called Arab street will go up dramatically. And again, the Arab leaderships get that, they understand that. So whatever they're publicly saying, and they'll be genuinely uneasy. The, the, the more, the longer this goes on, and the higher the you know the price of Palestinians in Gaza pay, the more they'll be uneasy. But they still won't want the outcome to be one where it looks like Hamas was successful because they see that as basically posing a greater threat to them. Yes. So am I right in thinking then there could be a, a pessimistic reading of the situation, which is obviously terrifying. How have you read it? But the, the most pessimistic reading of the situation is that. The Muslim world, Sunni and Shia, are so disgusted by Israel's response or so appalled by Israel's response in Gaza that they do actually come together and we're back into a, a kind of a war on terror situation, uh, the worst phases of it in terms of the Islamic world against the rest. And then there's a more positive reading, which is that um, this is almost uh, the sort of desperate cries of an Iranian alliance, a Shia alliance, that is that knows that it's close to being isolated or, or close to defeat. Look, I I think that the timing of this was very much related to the prospect of a Saudi-Israeli normalization because of what that would represent. Think about what it means. The custodian of the, the holy mosque is making peace with the nation state of the Jewish people. From you're, you're immediately diminishing the religious element of this country, which for the Islamists is a disaster because they, they, the Islamism is an ideology of political power where you use the the faith as an instrument to control. It's an ideology of power and control. It's not. This is not about Islam. This is about those who exploit religion for their own political ends. And if it looks like what they represent is a failed movement, uh, their appeal diminishes. Already, look, the, nobody in the region looks to Iran and says, gee, do we want to be like Iran? And even those who, you know, you look at Lebanon. Hezbollah has turned Lebanon into a failed state. It used to have a middle class. doesn't have a middle class anymore. Forty percent of its doctors and nurses have left. So, you know, the, they need successes and of their resistance ideology. And, you know, here is an effort to try to produce that. But look what it's doing to Palestinians right now. No, no one, the, the, the immediate response to what many in the Arab world see happening in, in Gaza is, you know, a great concern about what's happening to Palestinians simply from a human level. In this mix, there's a kind of set of strategic realities that one has to keep in mind. Are you not, and I'm, I realize this is a ridiculous question because you know far more about it than me, but are you not slightly underestimating the strength of not just anti-Israeli sentiment, but anti-Semitism in the Islamic world and the capacity that anti-Semitism has to bind Islamic groups together that would normally be totally opposed to each other? Look, there certainly is an element of that. I would be naive. And having spent so much time in the Middle East, I'm many things, but I'm not naive. I would be naive to think that that's not an element of it, at least something that you can, you know, when you scratch the surface and you have an event and it triggers that all over again. So, yes, there is an element of that there. 
But there's also a, a very interesting desire in, in at least part of the Arab world not to be the prisoner of the past and to be able to progress. Uh, and it means in there, you know, if we can come back, if we can come out of this with Hamas having looked defeated, then I actually think the potential for change is 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 quite real and and I can envision a circumstance where you create an equation where Hamas has been sufficiently set back militarily and its leadership has been sufficiently decapitated that it's not in a position to block what I call a demilitarization for reconstruction approach in Gaza uh, and maybe leadership by a technocratic group of Palestinians under an international umbrella. And I can even see a number of Arab states once you set this up, that would be prepared to come in and help with the reconstruction, at least financially. And maybe countries like, you know, Morocco and Bahrain, the UAE and Egypt would put some political forces in there to help a civil administration with security. I say you know, police forces, not military forces, because military implies occupation. Police implies day-to-day security. And a plan for reconstruction, not just of the immediate, but over time. You do that and you change Gaza significantly for the better. I also think the Saudi-Israeli normalization comes back, but it has has always had to have a Palestinian component, and now that becomes even more important. And I would just I'd add one more thing. There will be a reckoning in Israel when this is over. Because the worst day in Israel's history took place on October seventh. There will be a reckoning and there will also be something else. There has never been a debate over how to deal with the Palestinians since the Second Intifada. Second Intifada killed the peace camp in Israel. There will be a debate, and it'll have two schools. There'll be those who say, look, this just shows we can't afford a Palestinian state because look what could happen. And there'll be others who will say, this just shows that we can't freeze the situation with Palestinians under our terms and not produce, even if we've defeated Hamas, not produce a successor to Hamas. Both those attitudes are going to be present, and there'll be a debate. And the truth is, in Israel, there's always needed to be a debate on the Palestinians, and it just hasn't happened. Another, uh, lastly, Dennis, another uh, dynamic that is connected to what we're talking about is the leadership of Iran. And there's been a lot of anticipation for a long time now that uh, the generational game, as it's called, means that uh, Iran's leadership, which is theocratic, which is very anti-Western, which is very anti-Israeli, will have to change. Do you think the current crisis uh, is hastening that change or is uh, or is, is delaying it? Or um, is it a duality thing again where it's actually doing both at the same time? Look, I think that the, the, the current crisis probably doesn't play a lot on the evolution in Iran. It won't favor Iran, particularly, again, if Hamas looks like it's defeated. And one of the factors that may influence whether we have a second front from Hezbollah is how important Hamas is to the Iranian leadership. Uh, Hezbollah is more important by far to the Iranian leadership, uh, and it has always been held as, as kind of a reserve to try to deter attacks from Israel against Iran. Iran is quite willing to fight to the last of its proxies. shows that all the time not particularly keen to take direct attacks or to suffer direct casualties. I do think a reckoning is coming for Iran. Um, 
because you have a you have you basically have a regime that uh, constantly fails its own public. Its own public is deeply alienated from it. The way it dealt with the the women life freedom movement, the arrest and killing uh, and even poisoning of, of young girls, I think weakened the base it had even in the countryside. In the in Iran as a society, the rural areas were more traditional and more prone to be supporting the Islamic Republic. I think some of that support has been lost now. I used to always say about a third of the country probably supported the Islamic Republic. I think that is significantly down. Signs of real alienation, drug use, alcoholism and the like, these are signs of real rejection uh, of the regime. Uh, And so I, I say this because to me, the only ones who believe in the ideology any longer are those who are served by the, by the ideology and are in power because of it. It reminds me of the Soviet Union in 1980. And when you have, when the elite splits, which it will at a certain point, maybe at the time of the succession to the Supreme Leader, that's when I think you'll begin to see a regime that is going to find it harder to sustain itself. It's when the elite splits that a place like Iran where the coercive element of the regime keeps the public in check. It keeps it in check in the sense that it doesn't mean that there won't be protests and demonstrations because we've seen it every year for, since 2017. But it does mean they can hold power. When the elite splits, then you have different competing power elements. And so at that point, then the regime becomes, I think, much more imperiled. Does it happen with a supreme leader? Does it happen 10 years from now? 20 years from now? I don't know, but the one thing that's clear, they have a public that's deeply alienated and they have a public that doesn't buy the ideology. Dennis Ross, we'll end it there, but thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the Americano podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team, If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.